Trinity Baptist Church. Once I was living a nominal relationship with Christ, I considered myself to be a Christian, but there were huge areas of my life that I couldn't bring myself to submit to the Lord. I was afraid that if I did, well, only God knows where I would end up. I had big plans for my life, and I wanted God to bless them. But I wanted him to bless them on my terms. For the most part, I was, I was content living out a, a nominal existence. I had a great family. I had lots of friends. I had a happy life. But I also had this increasing uh, sense that there was something missing from my life, that I wasn't experiencing something that was available to me, but I didn't know exactly what it was. During my senior year in high school, uh, I won a scholarship to a Young Life camp. It was one of those strange things. Didn't really want the uh, scholarship, but I won it. And um, when I received it, I remember thanking the Young Life leader for it and telling him that I would like him to give it to someone else. Um, I, I was referencing all the other Uh, church camps that I had been to and knew that I did not want to go there. Um, Soon after graduating, I took a job working for an apple packing plant. And in the middle of the summer, uh, my manager came to me and gave us a week off. He said, you have a week off. We'll see you in a week. I had no idea what I was going to do with my time. I didn't know the week was coming. It It was a surprise to me. And then Ironically, the following day, I ran into my young life leader, and he excitedly came up to me and said, James, I've been trying to reach you for the last two weeks. Uh, That scholarship that you won, I still have it for you. I, I, I really think you're supposed to go. And he was so excited, I didn't know uh, how to say no. And so I said, all right, I'll... I'll go. I I have the week off, didn't have plans. And I told my parents, and they were so excited. They'd been Christians for my entire life. They were praying for me. And I remember arriving at the Young Life office with 35 to 40 other excited teens ready to load these three vans where we would drive from Yakima to Colorado. It was a 23-hour drive. And while I was standing there, Uh, The Young Life leader came up and he said, well, I have some kind of bad news. One of the vans has broken down, but don't worry, we're going to get everybody into the other two vans. It's going to be fine. (laughs) And already kind of on the fence, I turned to my parents who had brought me to the office and I said to them, I'm not going to go. Let's let's go. I'm not going to go. And my father, who... I think is a man that has more integrity than anyone I've ever met, more honest. He, he, he chooses his words incredibly carefully, uh, never said a swear word my whole life that I can remember. And he looked at me and he said, James, get your in the van. <laughs> and I remember being so shocked that I don't even remember getting into the van. (laughs) The next thing I remember, I'm on my way to Colorado in a van. And in that van, God met me. I had an incredible chip on my shoulder. 
I didn't expect that I could relate to anyone going to a camp like this. And during those 23 hours, and it took most of them, God softened my heart and prepared me for an incredible week of refreshing. Uh, At that camp, God revealed to me that what was missing from my life was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I had known all about God, been around God, read about God, but I didn't know him personally. And it was there that Jesus met me, and my life has never been the same. My name is James Leonard, and I am new. Today I'm going to be reading a passage of scripture from the book of Philemon. If you wanted to look in your own Bible, uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 25. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also, Aphria, our sister, and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church, That meets in your name, or in your home, excuse me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in in Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, It is as none other than Paul, an old man now, also a prisoner of Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not be seen as forced or that it would be, instead that it would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but as better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him the way you welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me 
your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Ephraim, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you for your spirit. This is God's word. Good morning. Thank you, James. Thank you, Lisa and team. This summer, we've been working through a series of sermons focused on relationships. James kicked off the series in June, teaching us about right perspective. And then throughout these weeks, we've been looking at that perspective in the context of friendship, of our relationship with Christ. We looked at it in the context of sex. Thank you, Tim Tian, better you than me. Um, In the church, in parenting. And last week, we looked at how to relate respectfully to one or respectfully to one another, um, even those we don't necessarily wish to relate to. And so today we're looking at this tiny 25-verse chapter of God's story, tucked in the New Testament between Hebrews and the T-books. It's a personal letter from Paul, from prison, to a friend, pleading the case of an escaped, albeit converted, slave. Well, that really doesn't seem to have much to do with 21st century New York City relationships. But as I'm sure you've already figured out, the church fathers included this letter in our scriptures for a reason. All things happen for a reason. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, or if you don't know who I am, my name is Beth Markham, and I'm the director of worship arts here at Trinity. I want you to bear with me, because this is going to be important at the end. Worship, you may have heard me say, declares remembers, and enacts God's story. It's all one big story. And in worship, as we declare God's story, we also hope to find our role in it. I'll start with a little bit of a story of my own. Um, As most of you know, I get the opportunity to speak here at Trinity about once a year. And every year the subject matter manages to be right in the center of what God is doing in my heart. He's funny that way. Um, The first time I spoke, I preached on worship, especially the charismatic aspects of worship. A year or so later, Keith asked me to speak on communion or the Eucharist. um, As my grad school studies had really stirred up in me a passion for that portion of our liturgy, and it's a passion that remains today. Last summer, I spoke on confession, and that was not an easy message for me to share. But can I tell you what I was originally asked to speak on last summer? If you know me, you're going to laugh. Keith asked me to speak on tact. <laughs> See, that's funny. 
Because tact is not really my greatest strength. See, I think I'm hilarious, but I'm a little more prone to just blurting out whatever pops in my head and I think about it on the other side and it gets me in a lot of trouble, which is probably why I was challenged to explore that topic for a season but was mercifully released to speak to something that I knew a little bit more about. You see, God's got a great sense of humor. Because today, we are looking at mercy. Now, last spring, it was the week before Easter, and my poor sweet husband contracted a pestilence of the stomach variety. Yeah? which resulted in about 24 hours of misery for him, during which his loving wife of 22 years drew an imaginary line across the threshold of our bedroom and quarantined him, told him not to come out until he was symptom-free for 24 hours because we don't got time for that. I, I did give him some water. You're welcome, darling. And I slept on the couch. And that is about the extent of my mercy gifts, my friends. God is funny indeed. Of course, we all have different gifts. And we're all on different journeys. And that's why we need each other to complete the body of Christ. Which doesn't get me off the hook for no mercy gifts, but it does give me hope for a role in God's story. Despite my weaknesses as I pray it does for all of us. And so this morning, I want us to look at the story of Philemon from a few different perspectives, and I want us to try to find ourselves in this chapter of God's story. So let me ask you, have you ever been caught in the middle of an argument? Maybe you have two friends, and you love them both, but they have a bad history, so you have to be careful not to mention one when you're with the other or not to invite them both to the same event. Or maybe you have a coworker who butts heads with your boss. Or maybe your spouse and your family don't really see eye to eye. Sometimes even we may find ourselves caught between friends or family members that are going through a painful divorce or a crushing betrayal. And we may even find ourselves faced with the potential of facilitating reconciliation, of interceding for one or the other. And that's the place that Paul finds himself in when he's writing this letter. Onesimus is Paul's friend. He refers to him, in fact, as having become his son while he was in chains. Now, we don't know if Onesimus met Paul as a fellow prisoner in jail or if he and Paul became close before Paul got imprisoned. But at some point, Paul is in jail and Onesimus is not. And yet, he remains a great help to Paul. Paul says his very heart. Perhaps providing for him, as was the expectation for families of, Rose, of those imprisoned by the Romans, uh, The Roman government didn't consider feeding and health care of their prisoners part of their gig. So their family members would come and they would take care of them. What we can safely discern from this letter is that it was Paul who led Onesimus to Christ. Meaning he knows firsthand the authenticity of Onesimus' faith and transformation. Paul also knew firsthand, you may recall, what it is to be transformed and yet not believed. Onesimus, Paul writes, became his son 
while he was in chains. The Greek word here is geneo, and it implies birth or rebirth as Paul's spiritual son, which is important to the context of Onesimus and Philemon, who was also led to Christ by Paul. But Onesimus, before his conversion, has robbed Philemon and run away. He escaped to Rome at great personal cost to Philemon. And Paul finds himself now in the tricky position of facilitating reconciliation between two enemies who are now spiritual brothers. Now, we could look at this letter, if nothing else, as a model of intercession for reconciliation. Notice the love and the affirmation that precede Paul's appeal. Beginning in verse 4, he writes, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts It actually better translates here to refresh the guts of the saints. Now, see, I don't think Paul's saying these things to Philemon to butter him up. I think he's reminding Philemon of who he is and of the role he's had in Paul's story and also in God's. Now, Paul points out he could just order Philemon to receive Onesimus at face value But instead, he appeals to him on the basis of love. Paul also could have kept quiet. He could have protected Onesimus, this changed man, and enjoyed the pleasure of his friendship and partnership. But instead, he tells Philemon he's doing the right thing and sending Onesimus back for the sake of them all and to the debt owed Philemon by Onesimus. Charge it to him. I'm wondering, is that the place we find ourselves today in the midst of conflict as mentors and friends, or do we determine right sides, perhaps preferring not to be put in this position? Do we just back away? We just withdraw? This letter reminds us of the potential of our role in a community of reconciliation and peace. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So what about Onesimus? What do we know about him? We know from this letter that Onesimus did Philemon wrong by not only running away, but stealing from him in the process. Onesimus has set himself up for punishment by death if he's caught. Now, I understand, given our nation's history of human trafficking and the evolution of our culture's respect for the equality of all men, it may be hard to view an escaped slave as the party committing the crime. I should point out that Roman slavery was a little different than the slavery our country eventually abolished. It was not race-based, and slaves did have a hope of freedom or manumission even Roman citizenship under the right conditions. Now, I'm not saying it was okay, but it was an accepted part of first century Christian Roman economy. And many scholars believe, in fact, that Paul assumed that the slavery was going to naturally die out with the expansion of Christianity, and so he didn't see it as a priority concern. I don't know about that, 
But I do know that in the context of this letter, Onesimus is, in fact, a criminal. But if that's hard for you to swallow, let's just say Onesimus betrayed Philemon's trust. I want to ask you, have you ever betrayed somebody's trust? Have you ever walked away when the right thing to do was to stay put and face the music? Is there anyone in your life who, if they walked in this room right now, would trigger your response to duck out the back before they saw you? I'll be honest with you, I have a few. People I hurt, people I judged harshly and then washed my hands of, people with whom I have unfinished business that, if I'm honest, I'd prefer to stay that way. And I'll tell you what, if I'm really backed up against the wall, I can probably give you a pretty good argument for justification. There are two sides to every story, except for God's. See, God's story is clear. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And our sin leaves other people broken. And justification is not ours to claim. But Onesimus has been changed. Paul says in verse 11, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful. And this is awesome because Onesimus' name, in fact, means useful. See how Paul did that? Through Onesimus' conversion, he's becoming what God intended him to be, who God intended him to be. And so... He's apparently willing to face not just a return to slavery, but death, certain punishment. Not because, as I read this, Paul is threatening to turn him in, but because it's the right thing to do. Perhaps, Paul recounted to Onesimus, Christ's teaching on worship. Matthew 5 reads, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. That's Matthew 5, 23, 24. And that brings us to the recipient of this letter, Philemon himself. Now, Philemon was a Roman citizen. He may or may not have been considered wealthy, but we do know that he and his wife, Aphia, were benefactors of a church that met in their home. Paul calls, them the, or Paul calls him beloved and reminds him that he, Paul, is Philemon's spiritual father, even as he praises him as a partner in the faith. And we can see that the work Philemon is doing for the kingdom is indeed bearing fruit. Nevertheless, I, uh, I wonder what it would feel like to be asked not only to pardon this runaway, thieving traitor, but to elevate him now to the role of brother, and we can safely assume partner as well. What about justice? 
What about the law? How on earth might this turn of events look to those whose esteem perhaps Philemon needed to maintain his place in society? Believers were often considered weak in this culture. Forgiveness and grace played no cultural role in first century social justice. So why should, I imagine Philemon thinking, he subject himself to further vulnerability and embarrassment on the behalf of his oppressor? The law, he might point out, is perfectly clear. Have you ever been betrayed? I mean, I mean like really, really, truly betrayed, wronged, attacked, used hurt. Has anyone ever taken what is yours? Broken your trust? Played you for a fool and gotten off scot-free? There are people in my life, in all of our lives, who have hurt us deeply. Even others who perhaps have unwittingly and with the best of intentions been played by the enemy to bring us down, to keep us broken. Now I want you to hear me when I say this. Because this is a relatively new revelation to me. The enemy gains more traction holding back God's kingdom through the well-intentioned lives and action of Christ followers than he would ever get messing with the other side. And if you think about it, that makes sense. We are dangerous. Those who don't follow Christ are not. So please don't hear me accusing brothers and sisters of being in cahoots with Satan. He is, after all, a liar who excels in deceiving God's own. The word is clear. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us that we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of this unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Listen, Satan can't have us, so he seeks to wreak havoc by dividing us. And so the word says, put on your armor. Have discernment. Because making a decision to follow Christ puts a target on your back, and there's not a one of us here who has not at some point let down our God, let down our guard, as well as our God, and allowed ourselves to be used. Even now, I'm walking through a season of what has felt like betrayal and injustice, both for me personally and in the lives of people I love. And there are those in my life who my heart struggles to forgive despite what I know of truth. And I have longed for justice. And I have longed for vindication. And I have longed to be right. 
Do you ever feel like that? Paul says to Philemon, Perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer a slave, but better than a slave, a dear brother, which I imagine myself in Philemon's position sort of snorting at. And then I think, I think about Joseph, who James began this series with, and the way Joseph responded to betrayal. What you intended for evil... God intended for good. And so I ask, is my faith in the one who has hurt me or in the retribution that I seek to find or is my faith in the one who has had us both all along? Joseph could have made his brothers pay. He could have delivered justice then and there. Instead, he chose mercy which, of course, is what Paul implores Philemon to do as well. Now, we don't know what happened to Philemon and Onesimus. We can suppose that Philemon took Paul's advice and reconciled with this slave now brother and lived happily ever after first century style. Otherwise, why would the church fathers have canonized the letter? But we don't know for sure. I find that reassuring. Um, it tells me that reconciliation is a process. It's not a one-and-done transaction by any means. It's a lifelong working out of relationship in a broken world with broken people with no end in sight before Jesus comes back. And we, we just need to, as, as my friend Kristen always reminds me, we just need to take the next right step. And we can look at the book of Philemon as an example of reconciliation in the body. The role of the intercessor, the role of the repentant, the role of the giver and of forgiveness and of mercy. And that in itself is a wonderful gift. But I propose that we can look at Philemon as much more. And that perhaps there is a greater message to be found. Because there's actually one instance in which reconciliation is indeed a one-and-done transaction. And that's the instance of Christ on the cross. Mercy, indeed. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Christ, our intercessor, our mediator of the new covenant on the cross, that all who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, That there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And the writer of Hebrews confirms, we do not have a high priest or intercessor who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Paul intercedes for Onesimus just as Christ intercedes for you and I. Paul's role in this story is that of the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Christ, our reconciler. Well, Christ's story, it doesn't include sinning against and betraying anyone. He does, however, know what it is to face the consequences of that sin. And while Jesus begged the Father for an alternative role or alternative route in Gethsemane, he remained faithful, not my will, but yours be done. The role of Onesimus, once useless, now useful, is expressed beautifully, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Onesimus' role in this story, it's also ours in God's. Finally, Christ the hand of mercy. Does Philemon know that Paul is asking no more from him than he has already received? Do we? See, I think we have to make a choice, once saved, in how we view mercy on a practical level. See, because even though we know we've been forgiven on no merit of our own, Somehow we find it comforting, once redeemed, to find structure and justification in our laws and our consequences for breaking them. If we're working so hard to do the right thing and to honor Christ, if we're working so hard to be holy, shouldn't justice play a role in the lives of those unwilling to play by the rules? Philemon, he would have been justified in telling Paul that he knew nothing about property ownership and being a good businessman, Paul. He could have sent Onismus to his inn, recouped his costs, and led worship in his house that very week. Now, those words hit me a little too close to home. I know that I have no oversight over anyone's life or death. But oh, how I have condemned. Oh, how I have welcomed justice and moved on. Maybe that's because for me to sacrifice being right and to set free the one who I'm certain is undeserving, it would be to admit that righteousness is not something to be earned, that I am powerless over my own salvation, and that I am more undeserving than anyone. But do you know what else it would do? It would leave justice to God, to whom it belongs, and it would set me free. Philemon's role 
in God's story, assuming he accepted it, and I think he did, was to accept and to extend a hand of mercy. Christ's mercy. To embrace and to demonstrate that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Do you need to show mercy to someone today? Maybe, maybe you need to show mercy today to yourself. Do you know that Jesus already has? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8. 1 and 2, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus, who intercedes. Jesus, who reconciles. And Jesus, through whom not only we receive, but then extend the hand of mercy. And that is our role in God's story. You pray with me. Lord, there's not a one of us in here who can come to your throne this morning worthy of the gift that you give. And Lord, even as we sing this morning, worthy, worthy, Jesus is worthy. Lord, we thank you for shedding your blood on the cross so that we could become white as snow. Our sin could be washed away. Thank you for showing us mercy. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here Anyone here who, who thinks that receiving that mercy is a part of being a better person or being a good person or being worthy, Lord God, would you, would you just place, place your finger on their heart right now? Lord, would you soften our hearts to receive your mercy? And Lord, even as you do, will you soften our hearts to extend it? Will you remind us, Lord, that we are all in this thing together and that we will be in this thing together forever and ever and ever by the power of your name? 
the name and by the blood of your Son we pray. Amen.